kind of my first thought whenever I see women's empowerment initiatives start up is how are they defining woman? Hmm. And because um, there are a lot of people who might not necessarily look like me who you know, identify as women and are women, or a lot of people who face my issues and worse because they identify outside of that gender binary. And I think sometimes um, creating these spaces like for women, rah, rah, while they're really important, can also leave out people who need far more help. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Hey, folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. It is Christmas Eve today, so Merry Christmas if you're into that. And if not, I hope you're celebrating something with people you love. Okay, today is number nine in the Sea Change series. We've been trying to get a student on this series, and today we have a very special one, Kat Cowley. Kat earned her undergraduate degree from the University of Montana in Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies in 2018, and she's now working toward her master's in public administration. She's done pioneering work here at the university, including an effort to open a food pantry in the university center. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation, from Kat's personal experience with housing insecurity to her time as a student senator dealing with some boorish male behavior. Kat and I discuss her hopes for sea change, including her concerns that the initiative might not be inclusive enough. I learned a lot from Kat, and I hope that you do too. So let's get into it right now. Okay, so we're here today with Kat Cowley. Kat, thanks for coming on the podcast. Of course, thanks for having me. So you're currently a student in the the Masters of Public Administration program. You said you got, what, a semester left? Two semesters left? Two semesters, if it works out right. I might stay for one extra. Why not? I mean, more school, the better, right? I don't know if I can afford another semester. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And when did you, you did your undergraduate here in, in, in gender studies, women's studies? What women's was the... gender and sexuality that's studies. Right. I can never remember the whole yeah, the we, chain of terms. We've there. had a few name changes, I think, in the last decade. I could blame it on the name changes, but that would sort of just uh, be distracting from the point <laughs> that I can't get it right. Um, well, thanks for coming in. It's great to meet you, and to, I'm excited to learn more about your work. Not only are you a student, but you're also a director. Uh, I don't know if director is even the right word, but you, you, you run the food pantry here here on campus. Yeah, I'm the student coordinator. Um, I kind of run the show there, and then I have help from an AmeriCorps VISTA member as well. What is the food pantry? First, tell us that. So we are here to provide free food and hygiene products to anyone on campus who needs it, students, staff, faculty, whoever. Um, And we just opened on February 1st. Okay. That sounds really important, yet something that probably not many people who, who don't have those needs think about often. So I'd like to come back to that. But before I do, maybe tell us a little bit about how you found the University of Montana and how that journey led to to this work, to deciding that uh, you wanted to be part of a movement to open up a food pantry? Yeah, kind of the best way to explain that is I come from a very long line of very stubborn women. Um, My Aunt Jane lives in town here, and towards the end of high school when I was looking at colleges, she said, you should really check out UM. Mm -hmm. At the time, I was looking at musical theater, and we have an awesome musical theater program. Um, And then I found out that our director of women's studies used to play hockey with my aunt. Okay. So my aunt kind of connected me to Beth Hubble, and I just found women's studies that way and knew it was the only place for me to be. 
And so, okay, so coming in as a as a, as a first year student, uh, studying that right from the get go. I mean, was it was it did, did did it meet your expectations? Was it what you were looking for in an undergraduate experience? Yeah, that and more. Um, I found that women's studies is a really awesome program to open you up to other ways of thinking and really to provide you with a lens through which you can interpret the world around you. So women's studies then led me into sociology and I got a minor there. Um, and that's really where I started to pick up on the need for anti-poverty work okay. through both women's studies and sociology. Yeah. And I don't want to necessarily dwell on this a little bit, but that there are certain, um, I don't know, positions in our culture, I guess, that are dismissive of, of any course of study with studies at the end of it. Yes. Um, talk about the need for a program like that. Like, Why is it important? Yeah. I mean, if you look at all the research that's been done in every area of studies, whether it's sociology or history or especially medicine, um, you find that there are groups that just aren't studied as often. Aren't as represented. Aren't as represented, whether they're doing the work or being researched. Um, And that's why this program is so important, because it brings those people to the forefront. So Beth does an amazing job of, even when she was teaching LSH 151, including women on our syllabus and including people of color and making sure we're raising up those voices that have been ignored for so often because they have so many important things to say. Why would we not listen? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a ton of really valid reasons to be thinking about this. One reason I think, at least when I, when I'm trying to have conversations with other folks that to try to illustrate it is to talk about medical research so many medical studies, the vast, vast majority, it's like all white men yep. for the sample. And so we're generalizing these health effects in a white male, middle-aged sample typically to everyone else, regardless of your gender, color, lifestyle, mm-hmm. background, all these things. So that, that's one area where I think it, it maybe, maybe starts to make more sense to somebody who's skeptical, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think particularly history is another really good example, yeah. um, looking at all of the important work women and people of color have been doing for centuries, the entire history of the world, um, often gets discredited or misattributed to a man. Right. Yeah. History is sort of written by the winners, so to speak. Yep. That um, that popular phrase. So anyway, uh, so when did you complete your undergrad? May 2018. Okay. And you went straight into the MPA program? I did. I got okay. an internship over that summer and knew the only way I could get credit towards a program is if I joined the program. So I just kind of went for it. And at some point along the way, you had an experience with your own housing mm-hmm. that led to some insecurity with both both uh, housing and food, right? So, yeah. So talk about, are you willing to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important to share my story to show that someone with lived experience is doing this work. So yeah. I'm always happy to talk about it. Um, yeah, in my last year of undergrad, I was living with the partner, and it became an unsafe living situation. And is that off-campus off housing, student off housing? Off-campus. Okay. Um, we had an apartment up the rattlesnake, kind of, um, and became unsafe for me. So I went and stayed in my aunt's basement for about a week, uh-huh. and I'm so lucky and grateful that uh, she was there and I could have that resource. And then... Later, Sark helped me get into the dorms um, for the semester. But there was a good week where where I had no idea where I was going to live. And that um, trying to figure that out as well as navigate classwork. And I had a test the day after I lost my house. And I failed it. 
and a class where sure. I got an A's on every other test. So trying to navigate the world of housing insecurity and possible homelessness on top of showing up to work and school was really, really difficult. I mean, so let's, if you don't mind, can we unpack that a little bit? Just yeah. so just so listeners can kind of understand. I mean, I'm sort of trying to put myself in your shoes in that moment. And all I can think about is like, if I'm in a situation that's physically unsafe, I mean, your your flight response is up. You just got to run and get the heck out of there and grab whatever you can to be safe. And I'm not trying to ask you to relive that, but, you know, so you got to flee. You got your aunt. You can mm-hmm. live there, but everything else is going to be in total chaos. Like you, yeah. you got this test the next day. I mean, when did you even remember that you had it? Uh, when I showed up <laughs> to the test. Right. Oh my gosh, I got to go to class. Oh, there's a test. Yeah. Um, and I had a really amazing um, graduate student teaching the course or instructor. I can't remember. I'm so sure. sorry, Dustin. Um, and they, you know, I couldn't not take the test. I don't get any special privilege because um, that's how school works. But they were really awesome about working with me later when I explained my situation. And I didn't end up retaking it, but um, improved the rest of the class and it turned out fine. But it was kind of really a slap to the face to realize, oh, my God, even if my world's falling apart, everyone else's is still intact. And I still have to participate in that world while I'm trying to put mine back together. What was your assessment of kind of you know, looking back on it, the way the system, if you will, sort of handled that situation? Well, the resources that were on campus were incredibly helpful. I started at SARC just because yep. I knew they were there and I knew that's what they were there for. And they did everything they could to help me. And I am—I don't know where I would be if I wasn't able to yeah. start there. Um, they helped me figure out housing. They helped me navigate, okay, how do I I w- I'm lucky because I had some money from my grandmother, so I was able to pay for that housing. But otherwise, finding $2,000 out of nowhere would have been really, really difficult. So I am I do have that privilege that I want to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. But kind of Sark was the main place I got help. And then UML Housing was able to stick me in one of the empty dorm rooms, no problem. Obviously, paying for a meal plan just meant paying for it. Yep. Um, so any on-campus resources I utilized were absolutely 100% helpful as far as finding housing once I was willing to accept that I had to be in the dorms. Yeah. Yeah. And that probably has its own set of challenges associated with it. Yeah. As a 21-year-old, I wasn't thrilled to be living next to 18-year-olds for six months. Right. But at least that's something. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And it gets you out of your aunt's house and takes mm-hmm. pressure off of her, but also sort of gets you back on, on your own feet, at least. Um, at this point, you're, what's your process of thinking, wow, you know, my experience... You probably feel unique while you're in it, but then you start to realize that a lot of other students face this sort of reality, these sorts of challenges during their experience. Yeah, and I found a lot of that, um, a lot of those personal stories when I was doing research for my internship later, um, the Real College Movement through the Hope Center for College Community and Justice out at Temple um, does a really good job of sharing those what they call hashtag real college stories, um, that college students are real people too. and then even at UM, looking back on some old Kaiman articles from, I want to say my freshman and junior year, there were a lot of stories shared about other students at UM who were homeless. Um, and again, I'm very privileged in that I was able to pay for housing and figure it out right away, but that's absolutely not the reality for a lot of people. And that privilege is kind of why I got into this work. And, and how has that kind of oriented your focus as a, as a master's student? 
a few different ways. Um, kind of when I get my own research topics for class, I try to focus on basic needs and security in colleges and what policy changes should be made to um, kind of eliminate this problem. Because every time I clock into the food pantry, the hope is I never have to clock in again. Mm -hmm. um, these are not meant to exist forever. They just have to right now. Yeah. So my research has been very um, kind of aimed at the future and how to solve the problem permanently, as well as kind of finding my path and wanting to work in higher ed forever instead of going into maybe local government or bureaucracy. Gosh, you, you, you throw out solving the problem permanently. Is that even <laughs> something we can conceptualize? I mean, I can't even imagine what a world like that looks like. I mean, I think we have to. I think food I is a human yeah. right, as is housing. And I think it's shameful that we have people who own multiple houses in Missoula and then maybe rent them out on Airbnb instead of providing more affordable housing for people who already live here. And that's true across the world. Um, there are so many people that have so, so, so much and so many more people that have so little. And I think as someone with a little bit of privilege, I should be using that to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. um, what is it? Superman with great power comes great responsibility. Right, right. Not that I have great power, but I feel like we all have a responsibility. And you're on a you're on a program, a master's in public administration, where you could prepare yourself for a career in potentially designing policies, mm -hmm. or fighting for policies or whatever that, that could address some of these um remedies that you're you're postulating yeah and i'm kind of learning through this program that i'm a little bit more of a radical than i thought okay i don't know if that comes from my past in uh women's studies and feminist and queer theory or uh my personal experience both my parents are social workers so okay. they're Here in town uh both back in spokane okay um so i have more familiarity with kind of the closest boots on the ground kind of work that they did yeah but I'm learning I have to, if I want to go into like government and policy work, I may need to water it down, which is why I probably won't end up there. Well, tell me about that. What do, I mean, what do you even mean when you say you're learning you're a radical? What, what, well, what's a radical mean to you? I find that, I mean, beyond grad school turning in, me into some what of a Marxist, um, I think the most important work for a public, public administrator is to serve the public in front of them. And I think a big part of that is learning who is the most disadvantaged, who needs our help the most, and then guaranteeing that they have a seat on the table no matter who else it pisses off. Okay. Um, and I think in a lot of ways it's very difficult to lift up those voices that have been discredited, ignored, disenfranchised for so long if no one's listening to them right now. So how do we make sure that they get into these meetings? How do we make sure that they have seats on boards and committees and our elected officials as well. And I think a lot of that is really looking at the systems we have in place and considering not that the systems are broken, but that they were set up against certain people in the first place. Okay. So some systematic bias or blind spot mm -hmm. or, you know, whether it's intentional or unconscious or whatever, that some of these structures are, were flawed from the start. Is that kind of what you're... Yeah. I mean, look at who our government was set up by. Mm -hmm. It was a group of slave-owning, land-owning, privileged white men. Um, and maybe some of them are queer. We're looking back at history and learning that now. But they set up our government to work for them because they didn't have the other experiences yet. And whether it was intentional or not, sure. that's how it has turned out today. And as you're kind of thinking about your path forward... Um, 
and, and I might have misheard you, but you said you know you're thinking that maybe following some of the the, the policymaker uh, in the system roles is maybe not for you. You can't work with from without the system to 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 change it from within. What what are you thinking about there? Um, I'm kind of honestly looking at two separate paths halfway through grad school. Honestly, yeah. I have no idea what I'm doing. Well, with that's the rest that's of my life. totally okay. I think it's awesome. <laughs> But my two general paths are either, you know, work within the system to change the system. That's yeah. uh, liberal feminism when you sure. look at feminist theory. And I think that can be really, really important. Um, but I think sometimes you can't work within the system because it's set up against you. So I'm a queer person. I don't have um, – I'm not considered a protected class in Montana. So mm-hmm. I don't have protections for housing and work in a lot of the state. And I don't know if I want to work in a government that has yet to change that. Okay. Okay. So maybe a role with an NGO or an activism role or something else completely. Nonprofits in Missoula. There's like 400 of them. <laughs> I, I think there's more than that, actually. There might be 400 on Higgins Street alone. <laughs> um, okay. So let's uh, turn our sights a little bit to to the food pantry. Yeah. Because I think, you know, I I, um, I sort of learned started learning about your work and learning about Nicole Heyer's work. Um, she does a lot of work with... Uh, with housing security for for high school students up in the Flathead, and you know, I think there's an awareness issue here that, that people think of college students as kind of a privileged class to begin mm-hmm. with, and, and in many ways, people that can you know gain or you know do the things they need to do to gain admission to a university, and then to be able to set up their lives to be able to attend college, that is a tremendous privilege in a lot of ways, or at least the way our society is sort of conceptualized right now. Um, I think it might be surprising to a lot of people that there's a significant number of students here that are, you know, like yourself and your lived experience that experience food insecurity and housing insecurity. And can you talk a little bit about that population and, 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 um, Maybe less about the mechanics of the food p- pantry, but more like who who are these students and and how are they getting by? What are their what do their lives look like? Absolutely. So we know um, based on the Real College survey we ran in September 2018, we were the first school in the state to be involved. And so that was part of that Temple so pr- program. Yep, that's at uh, the Hope Center for College Community and Justice at Temple. They designed the survey, okay. um, and it's done nationwide across as many states as can enroll in it, and then. We get our own school report as well as a national report when we get the results back. And you were saying the University of Montana was the first school in Montana to participate. And and how, how widespread has it been in, until now? Like how, how much uh, participation is going on nationwide? If I remember correctly, the first survey they ran in 2016 ran across 24 states and was more focused on community colleges. Okay. And then in the past two years has grown and included a lot more four-year universities. Yeah, so pretty big initiative, yeah. pretty good set of data. Yeah, so tell us about kind of kind of some of the results of that survey. Yeah, so our um, – the only – I apologize. The only statistic I brought with me was that we learned that 42% of students at UM have experienced food insecurity or had 30 days before the survey. And that's a really big number. 42%. 42% of those surveyed, yeah. And the survey, does it define food insecurity or just does it use that term? I mean, so it's a little bit of self-report there. It's a lot of self-reporting. And the way that the questions are designed, it's a lot of um, have you had to 
miss part of rent because you had to pay for groceries? Check okay. yes or no. Have you – it kind of lists a set of experiences and asks, is this something that you yourself have gone through? So there's some uh, – there's some thoughtful survey design there to yes. avoid some presentation bias, whether somebody is, uh, you know, you could construct a world where people might be uh, hesitant to report food mm-hmm. insecurity or uh, you could overreport it. So it sounds like some of the measures were, were thoughtfully des- or the measures in general were thoughtfully designed to, to mitigate that possibility. Absolutely. And they do a really good job as well of helping us measure low to high food insecurity, whether it's once a month, I have to miss a few meals, and it's frustrating, but I can survive. And obviously, no one should have to experience that, but there it is. Or I can barely afford rent because I have to buy groceries or vice versa. Um, so that kind of – there's a wide range of what food insecurity can look like. And so, gosh, 42%. What did you feel when you when you heard that number? I mean, that's, how does Honestly, that resonate with your experience? I wasn't surprised okay. because cost of living in Missoula is so, so high mm-hmm. and minimum wage is only eight fifty as of this January. Yeah. That's too low. Even if you're working full time, it's too low to make it week to week. And most students aren't able to work full time or it's a lot harder for us to because we also have to put in all our time studying. Yeah, these things called classes that yep. you occasionally <laughs> have to attend. Yeah, so... It made a lot of sense to me. And in my own experience, um, as a sophomore, I was working somewhere in town and just not getting enough hours and, again, had to rely on the generosity of my aunt and my parents and my Mm -hmm. roommate um, because I was really struggling to afford groceries on my own and was able to get out of that situation. But it took a long time. And, okay, so how'd the food pantry come to life? You got this need, shockingly large need. I think when people hear that number, they'll – I mean, it's it's, it's – I don't know if shocking is the right word, but it's certainly alarming to yeah. me. And, you know, particularly, like, I take it back, a good, good friend. He's a fifth-grade teacher uh, in New Hampshire. I had a conversation with him a few weeks ago. They are talking about all these programs. And he says the single biggest determinant of student success in, in his experience, and I think the data support this, is if a student's had a good breakfast. Absolutely. And so the link between food security and academic performance and well-being on so many dimensions is so profound. Um, Situated within that, how does the food pantry come to be? I mean, you're obviously passionate about this. How do you make it happen? So it was a group of faculty and staff, uh, kind of from all over campus, but a lot of help came from the UC. We actually got together and decided to open the pantry before we'd run any studies. Um, We had enough. We felt that we had enough anecdotal evidence uh, that we just knew it was a problem and knew to move forward. So we kind of all just sat down in a room and said, screw it, we're doing this. Um, And that was really, I think, what needed to happen. A couple groups had tried to consider opening one here before, and it just never really got through. So I think we just got the right people in the room. Sure. And when was this? Last mid-July, I want to say, 2018. Okay, so just over a year ago. Yeah. And when you say the right people in the room, like, who are these people? Who can we thank for this? Adrian Donald, Daisy Rooks, Jordan Lyons. Um, last year's ACM president, Alex Butler, was uh-huh. really helpful. Alicia Buchholz, and I'm so sorry if I'm saying her name wrong, in the social work department uh, was really instrumental. And then we've had people in and out from both housing and dining as well. Okay. So it's in the UC. Where in the UC? Right now, 
we're actually moving, so we're going to be in UC 119, which okay. is on the west side of the building yep. by the lockers and bathrooms. Okay. And you know, tell us about how it works and you know what the space is like and what a student interested in, in, in checking it out could expect or a student who wants to maybe contribute to the effort in, in, in what ways. Like how, yeah, give us a description. Yeah, so I try to set it up so it feels like you're going to shop at a grocery store. Obviously, you're not paying for anything, but it's really important to me to use that choice model so students don't feel like they're just getting a handout or being sure. pitied, um, that they could walk in and decide, well, I really don't like garbanzo beans, but I love black beans, so I'm going to take four cans of those and yep. no garbanzos. Thank you. Um, so students will walk in and answer a six-question intake survey, and that's mostly so that we have the ability to track how many people visit every month, um, and so that if students also are interested in learning about the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, I can help them, or if they want okay. help finding housing resources, I can send them to the Renner Center and get help there. Um, so usually I have a conversation, how's your day going, will you fill out the survey? So far, everybody's been chill with filling out the survey, and then they just shop around, and I weigh their bag, and then send them on their way. A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hi, this is Mike Morelli, Director of the Entertainment Management Program at the University of Montana, and you are listening to A New Angle. So there's this, you know, the, uh, we've had Kathy Cole on, on, on the podcast. I don't know if you know Kathy, but she's our you know, Vice President of enrollment in strategic communications but she's got this really poignant story about her she was a first generation college student and um you know she was in some endless line trying to figure out how to do the financial aid and and just just totally distraught and 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 unprepared and unable to kind of navigate the bureaucracy and you know random act of kindness by some staffer in in, in the financial aid department at her university sort of helped her navigate it and I'm thinking about students that are participating in the food pantry. You've created a, a system that sounds like it's pretty darn easy for a student. To, well, I say easy, um, logistically easy for a student to walk in. I mean, there's a whole other host of difficulties associated with 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 a bunch of things that, that would make walking into that room hard. But logistically easy, and that's wonderful. Do you find in your experience in getting to know some of these students or maybe in your own experience that there are institutional resources that those folks could be taking advantage of if those resources were maybe easier to navigate or if they were aware of them or if the process was easier? Or, you know what I'm getting at there? Absolutely. I think because um, there are a lot of awesome resources on campus that just are underutilized. Yeah. And much like Kathy's story, I think the biggest issue is that institutional knowledge piece. Yeah. I'm lucky because both of my parents have master's degrees. Um, so I kind of knew what to expect in general at college. I knew, okay, well, there's a financial aid office. They can help me with fin aid stuff. Sure. And they're social workers. So they kind of understand how systems work. Yes, <laughs> that also. So I have a lot of institutional knowledge because of that. So students who come as maybe first gens or parents who got a BA, but like in a totally different institution, might just not know how to navigate finding help on yeah. campus. So there's a lot of grants and loans available here that I think students just don't know how to find. Yeah, That's a big thing I try to advertise at the pantry during the school year is, mm -hmm. hey, 
You talked to me about having to pick between food and books. Here's a great way to find a loan or preferably a grant uh, to be able to pick up those books and still succeed academically as well as feed yourself. And I encounter this occasionally in class. Unfortunately, it's, it's slightly more than occasionally. But a student will have missed a test or is a small amount short on tuition or can't make a tuition deadline but can't, you know, some small, relatively small issue is an impediment to moving forward and the student, at least according to their their, their sort of view of the world, like their only option is to withdraw completely, to drop out and to start college another time of their life. And, and, and really, whether or not the student's aware of it, we do have programs that can keep that student in the mix. You know, whether it's a some gap financing or a petition or some other um, arrangement in their financial aid or housing that could keep them engaged and, 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 and on the path with their classes. But students, I don't think, have a good awareness of those resources. It could be. I think you're right in that it's often an awareness issue. It can also kind of be a trauma response. Yeah. Facing yeah. homelessness and food insecurity can be a form of trauma for a lot of people. I'm sure. And for a lot of people, the first thing you do when you are that scared or, or overwhelmed or facing down a big scary issue is you just freeze yeah. or you get so overwhelmed you can't move forward. And that's, I think, where the support of faculty is so important. I was so lucky to have faculty like Daisy Rooks and Beth Hubble who saw me as a human first and a student second. And whether they could notice you struggling or you actually went and talked to them were very understanding and helpful. And I think um, including things like basic needs statements on syllabi so students know their faculty mm. understand the issues they're facing um, are really important. So students know, oh, yeah, my faculty, my professor is also a human and right, hopefully right. sees me as one too and I can go look at them for help if I need it. And I do think that that I've, – I've worked at a variety of universities and been around a variety of universities. I will say that's one thing that we do a pretty darn good job at, like that the power distance thing between students and faculty I think is, is pretty minor, um, at least with the folks that I know and, and, and the buildings I've been around here. I don't know if that fits with your experience as a student. Absolutely. That's okay. a big part of why I stayed uh, and why I hope one day to come back and work here forever. Um, yeah, yeah. I have all of my Cat fingers crossed. Cat has all of her fingers <laughs> crossed. I would be knocking on the wooden table if, if I didn't want to screw up the audio. <laughs> but yes. But yeah, we really, I think there's really a culture of caring here and yeah. whether it's every single person, who knows. But I, the reason I want to stay here in Missoula and on campus is I didn't get that at all growing up in Spokane. Uh -huh. um, people felt very disconnected. And there's such a strong sense of community here. I can't imagine ever leaving. Gosh. So I want to pivot the conversation slightly and talk about our Sea Change Initiative. This this episode that we're having is situated within the Sea Change Initiative. Um, and I know, Kat, you have some, some important thoughts about that. Um, before we kind of get into that, though, I did I did want to ask, have you noticed any any differences in how food insecurity has affected different uh, affects people differently you know does it have a different effect on female students than male students or different categories of students or 
yeah. I know it's a problem for everybody, and I don't want to sort of slice it up into groups, but um, I think of like a, 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 a student with a child. And food insecurity is a whole different ballgame in that, in that instance. If you're putting food in your child's mouth before yourself, it's... Absolutely. Um, so the research I've seen kind of reinforces this idea that food insecurity doesn't create further gender disparity, but rather kind of compounds on the inequalities that already exist. So, you know, a single mom is more likely to experience food insecurity, um, just like she's more likely to experience all sorts of other issues because she is a single mother. Um, and there's kind of this zombie statistic floating around that 70% of the world's population in poverty is women. That's a statistic that's often presented without context, so that's not one I really sure. want to bring up all the time. Uh -huh. But women are often more likely to experience poverty, whether we're paid less or, you know, all those other issues. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we don't – so far we haven't really been tracking demographics at the pantry because we yeah. want to keep that survey uh, – intake survey smaller. But uh -huh. anecdotally, I think we do see more women um, – and most of the people that come in who have kids are also women. So there's that kind of anecdotal fact. Yep. Um, not to say that men don't also experience food insecurity, but in my experience are less likely to come seek help from me. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting way to frame it. Less likely to seek help. And, mm -hmm. and, and that could speak to the need. That could speak to some sort of willingness mm -hmm. to come in in general. There's a lot of different things that could be at play there. Um, and thinking about sea change specifically, so we have this initiative, year-long initiative in the run-up to the 100-year anniversary of the, the 19th Amendment in March of 2020. Um, as a student of, of women's and gender studies and thinking about this sort of um, notion of safety, which has been a real issue for you, um, empowerment and acceleration, you know, how do you think of, of I mean, your work hits all three of those, if you think about it. Um, how do you think about the relationship with the food pantry situated in, in, in a time when a university is trying to take stock of how it's doing on the gender issue? Yeah, I think kind of the easiest tie-in is that safety piece. Mm -hmm. um, it's far more, it's far easier for a woman to leave um, an unsafe relationship, a woman or any person, um, when they know that they don't have to worry about being able to afford food, they don't have to worry about having access to tampons, toothbrushes, shampoo, whatever. Um, so that's why, for me, it's a, one of the most important reasons we're open because that's something I can relate to. Yeah. So the safety piece is there, and I think it's very important. And then also the fact that I am a young woman. I just turned 23 a month ago, um, and I'm kind of running this on my own and our our newest VISA employee is also a woman, so that's cool. But to Visa, see... VISA, tell us what VISA is. Sorry. AmeriCorps VISTA. Oh, VISTA. Yeah, yeah, yeah I got Sorry, it. Sorry, I misspoke. Um, to see two young women kind of taking charge and leading something that's so vital to what we re need right now is also really, really important. Mm -hmm. I Had I not seen firsthand examples of women in leadership when I was an undergrad student, I don't know if I would have felt empowered enough to be here. Sure. If you don't see it, you can't be it, kind of. Yeah, th that makes great sense. Um, yeah, I think you. I mean, we were talking a little bit uh, before we before we started started recording. It's these sorts of initiatives are hard, particularly in, in an era where we're sort of trying to rethink conceptual or traditional conceptualizations of gender 
there's some challenges with an initiative like this. How do you include all all the people that need to be included? I mean, there's a lot of folks that need safety, empowerment, and an acceleration. Yeah, kind of my first thought whenever I see uh, women's empowerment initiatives start up is how are they defining woman? Mm. And because um, there are a lot of people who might not necessarily look like me who um, you know identify as women and are women or a lot of people who face my issues and worse because they identify outside of that gender binary. And I think sometimes um, creating these spaces like for women, rah, rah, while they're really important, can also leave out people who need far more help. Um, so I, and there's no really one right answer, yeah, right? This it's, is a complicated topic. Yeah, and I like to say that feminism lives in the shades of gray. That's where we're trying to break down uh -huh. those binaries or fill in the spaces or However, the right answer comes sure. about, it comes about. Um, and I, I'm excited about Sea Change because it's something. Something is happening. And as an undergrad, uh, I really loved women's studies, and I love the work Sark did and the Women's Resource Center did, but I felt that that's kind of where any women's empowerment came from was those three small, small, underfunded offices. Yeah. So to see the administration kind of saying, oh, yeah, we care we're doing something is really, really cool. But I'd like to see something that's less focused so narrowly specifically on women and how do we uplift all voices of disenfranchised and marginalized groups here? How do you how do you do that? I, I mean, that's a huge question, right? I mean, I'm not I'm not asking you to, to, to come up with the answer right <laughs> now. But but it's interesting to think about. I mean, I think about it in the context of like, you've got a world where there are people that think the world was, you know, better in the past and we should keep it the way it was. And then there are people that think it's terrible now and it needs to change <laughs> in a bunch of dimensions. And then there's people in between. Probably most people are, are in between. They see some things they like in our current structures and they see th some things that they would they would think should change. Mm -hmm. Um you know, clearly, if you look at the data, you know, there, there are some problems specifically with regard to the differences between men and women um, th that we should create systems to address. Yet that does leave out, you know, people that don't identify as, as men or women or these binary, you know, the binary categories. How do you kind of create a system that, that makes those folks welcome at the same time, doesn't slow down progress that's being made by women in general, doesn't alienate people that are maybe at first open to saying, oh, yeah, we should we should do more for women. But I don't know about this other, you know, non-binary group. I got to start learning about that. You know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's people, I, and it's a reflection of our media environment and how polarized things are. And there's boogeymans on both sides. <laughs> yeah. I think kind of the most important place to start is just by listening and taking that time to learn. Yeah. And there are some people who just don't want to or aren't there yet. And that's, you know, it's not great, but it's fine. Um, and those aren't the people I'm going to spend a lot more time focusing on. Sure. I'm going to spend more time focusing on those who need my help. And as a, especially as a cisgendered woman, I try to really open up the floor and make sure if I'm coming to have a seat at the table, who can I bring that can provide a different experience that can speak to um, just a different area of life that they live in on campus? Because I can only speak as experience about my experiences as a woman here. Um, and I do, I am awarded a certain amount of privilege because I identify as a woman. I, two people who pass my be on the street, see me and say, oh yeah, that's a lady. Yeah. Um, 
So I want to make sure if I'm coming to advise a group about how to discuss gender issues or queer issues, that I also bring somebody who has a very different experience from my own. And I try, I think that's the best way to move forward is to listen and learn from those within our communities who have those different experiences. Um, And by lifting up their voices, we'll know what the right direction to move forward is in. So when you say you bring people who have had a different experience to the the conversation or to the interaction, what's that looked like? I mean, have you had experiences where you feel like people's minds have been opened up and meaningful dialogue has has come out of it? Absolutely. I think um, in my undergrad, I was, and I guess the first semester of grad school, I was an ASUM senator on campus. And I spent a lot of time trying to advocate to say we should also include other groups. We have to consider how this affects people whose lives don't look like our own. Um, And that slowly and kind of still focused on that binary aspect of being in local government, not that ASUM's local government, but it is on campus. Um, How does it look to make sure everybody at the table is treated equally? And then how do we also make sure we're expanding who is able to be at the table? So kind of the first step there I saw from ASUM is we started including our pronouns on all our um, placards on the table Mm -hmm. and our name tags as well, just to kind of normalize like, hey, Kind of just like your name, I always introduce myself. Hey, I'm Kat Cowley. I use she, her pronouns. Can yep. I ask what your pronouns are? Sure. Um, just so it's not – so people who use pronouns different from what people might assume just looking at them feel less called out or less uncomfortable trying to say, hey, I use something different. Um and that they don't have to feel like, oh, I'm the only person in my room – in the room that said I use she, her, that right. everybody else did too. So it's kind of normalizing that. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I mean, and it's particularly effective in the context of electronic communication. Yeah. Um, are you willing to talk about some challenges in that work? I mean, I'm sure it's, it hasn't all been smooth sailing. Yep. Um, I think we still, and whether it's a regional thing or an age thing or whatever, um, I think we are still running into that very silly, well, it's not proper grammar to use they, them, or I don't understand. Oh, I mean, I feel that in myself. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm a bit of a grammar curmudgeon with my writing and, and you know, my evaluation of students' writing. And yeah, for a long time, like using they as a singular sort of blasphemy you know in terms also, of in terms of grammatical structure but a long time ago it was also very normal thou and thou yeah you're totally right so what is language meant to do if not change i agree yeah uh what i'm, what I'm i guess the point i'm trying to make is that i feel this discomfort in me in the moment um and in some ways it's it's just language i mean somebody says you call me whatever like that's their preference and, and i should respect that but in, 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 you're, you're, sometimes there is that discomfort internally, even when someone has all the best intentions or they think they have the best intentions. Absolutely. And I think um, – and I talk about this whether it's in the anti-poverty work I do or kind of queer rights activism I participate in. I think it's really important to let yourself get comfortable with being a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean that's kind of the whole point exactly, in a lot of ways. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think – most of the kind of funky pushback I saw um, in my time on Senate had more to do with specifically sexism in meetings um, and less having to do with kind of that broader category of gender. But to this day, I'm having the same issues in meetings as my mom did where I'm being interrupted by women, by men and uh, myself and other women in the room just aren't being listened to. Um, And that got better throughout my time on Senate because I was very loud and stubborn about the fact that this had to change. 
But that was kind of the biggest thing that really colored my experience on Senate. That was the one thing to this day I think about. And the first thing I think is, oh, remember that time I was the only woman in a meeting for a full semester. Mm-hmm. How often did that happen? Um, I mean, it doesn't happen often that I'm the only woman in a meeting. But I still, in my work at the food pantry or as a graduate student, um, I feel that I'm taken a little less seriously than some Hmm. of my male coworkers, and whether that's my presentation, those of you listening can't tell that I have purple hair and multiple face piercings and tattoos, um, which affect, of course, don't affect my IQ or knowledge of any subject, but um, whether it's my age or my gender, I find that I'm often kind of discredited or listened to less, uh, especially when I'm presenting off campus. On campus, I have less of those issues, so I've proven myself. I've been here and I've put in the work and the time and people can point to the work I've done and say, okay, she knows what she's doing. But when I leave campus, I find it's a lot harder to be taken seriously. Yeah. I mean, campus is sort of a bubble in in many ways and some good and some bad and and whatever, but I could definitely see that dynamic being different on and off campus. And my impression of you is that you're willing to sort of stand up to it and call, call shit out that should be called out. Absolutely. Is that more clear? Um, yeah, I'm kind of known, or at least I'm trying to be the person in meetings who interrupts back. Yeah. When, like, other female coworkers are interrupted, be like, hey, no, I really want to hear what she had to say, or hey, she was not done talking. Um, and there was kind of a somewhat infamous, infamous moment on Senate a couple of years ago where, as the chair of a committee, I presented information, and someone asked a question, I answered it, and then somebody else who was on the committee said, excuse me, who was a man, excuse me, can I answer that question? chair of the Senate meeting looked at me and I said, I answered it. They have the information. Um, And this is someone, yep, this is someone who I'd had issues with um, in that vein throughout the whole year Mm -hmm. because of my gender not being taken seriously. And that was kind of the turning point for me. That was the moment where I was like, wow, it feels really good to stand up for myself. And now I try to do that in every meeting, in every class, in every interaction. And hopefully, by doing so, lead by example and teach other women, you should be loud and you should be stubborn and you should make sure you're not getting in your own way and letting this happen to you. Awesome. So how will you hold the University of Montana accountable in this? In this, uh, you know, if we're, if we're taking stock of where we're at, how are you going to hold us accountable? Uh, I think the best way to do so is to continue to be loud and stubborn. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, if changes come from sea change at the end of this year, making sure next year I'm like, hey, do you remember when we said we were going to do this thing? (laughs) I didn't notice it happen. Um, And sometimes bureaucracy, whatever, things don't quite happen. Things aren't always implemented the way they are proposed. And I totally understand that. But also making sure if we say we're going to make a commitment moving forward that women feel empowered and they feel that they have equity on this campus, prove it. Kind of I've seen – You know, all over the world, in all sorts of governments, on this campus and off this campus, a lot of big talk. And big talk is cool, Mm -hmm. but I want to see a lot more action behind it. Execution. Yep. Yeah. Well, that seems like a a good way to bring it to a close. So as we kind of wind this down, uh, Kat, how can people find out more about your work or get involved in the food pantry or tackle some of these uh, complex issues of thought that we've been talking about Um, where would you direct them? Um, I, you know, first direct them internally and remind them to continue being uncomfortable and being okay with it and kind of reflecting, especially on negative stereotypes of college students. 
Um, and then also to find us in the real world, we're housed in the UC. We'll be in UC 119. Um, and I have purple hair, so if you run into me on campus, that's who I am. You can always talk to me. Um, but to check in on ASUM and kind of see what the Renner Center is doing and what the pantry is doing, that's the best way to find us usually. Awesome. Well, Kat, best of luck, not only with the completion of your graduate students, but with this important um, initiative to ensure food safety for all of our students. And um, yeah, thanks for sharing your story and, and thanks for the work you do. Thank you so much. Okay. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Check out Kat's Sea Change blog post at umt.edu slash c-change slash blog. Okay. Coming up next week, we're bringing you one that might just scare you. I'm joined by UMass Lowell Professor Scott Latham. We discuss the future of work and how it's disrupting many industries, especially higher education. So happy holidays and see you next time. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, executive producer Stefan Borsum and interns Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot and see you next time.